we get into that, I do want to just acknowledge that, you know, we're, this is a, a beautiful day here, and there's wonderful things happening, the sun is shining, uh, we have great comfort, and um, we're going to have a wonderful lunch later, uh, but there are lots of people in the world right now who are suffering, and so I'm just take a minute before we get into this passage and pray about that, and pray for those who are suffering, and so Father, uh, we say along with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, how long will our souls be in anguish? And so, Lord, we, um, we lift up to you the situation that's happening in Israel. And, Father, we pray uh, against those who would um, want to bring harm and terror, those who would want to oppress. Lord, we pray against those evil actions. And we say, how long, O Lord? And we ask, Lord, that you would intervene and that you would bring peace. And Lord, we pray, we continue to pray the same for what is happening in Ukraine. Lord, we, we stand with those who are suffering. And we say along with them, how long? And Lord, you actually taught us to pray, come Lord Jesus. And so that's what we say, Lord. We say, come. Come and put everything right. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Okay, here's a shocker. I don't know if you caught this, but in that passage that was read is kind of a long one. I don't know if you caught these verses, but Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. In other words, what he's saying is to be a Christian, Jesus said, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So I hope we're all ready for that lunch after church later today. Uh, we are gonna come back to that statement later, so stick with me, I'm gonna address that. Um, but what we're gonna do today is actually zoom in really close on just one verse, verse 35. And uh, we'll put, I'll just put that on the screen for you. It says, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And what we're gonna do is zoom in on that one verse. And, and I like being able to zoom in because we've actually become so accustomed to interacting with every photo that we can zoom in on any photograph that we take with just the pinch of a couple of fingers and the spreading. Uh, so much so that a couple of weeks ago I was visiting a friend and because we're so used to like zooming in on photographs on our phones and our tablets and stuff, he was actually showing me an old framed photograph from the late 1860s and I asked him about a specific detail in the photo and he actually took his fingers and went like this on the photo. Uh, that's how accustomed we are to like just zooming in on things. And so that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna zoom in on this one verse. But before we do that, I wanna actually zoom way out. Because what we're talking about starting today until uh, December is the answer to this one question, what is truth? And that's actually the title of our series that we're starting today, what is truth? And I actually think uh, that's an important question for a day like today when we have a family who are dedicating themselves to raise their child in the truth. That was one of the commitments that they made. They were raising him in the truth, to know the truth, to speak the truth. And so Clint and Hannah, what is the truth that you're gonna pass on to Asaph as he grows? And for the rest of us, what is the truth that we're basing our lives upon? All, right, all of our biggest decisions, our, our very identities, who, like who are we? And what is it that we're basing that on? What truth are we basing that on? And when you read through the account of the life of Jesus written by the Apostle John, 
Uh, this word truth actually stands out as much as any other word in the whole book. And actually at the very end of John's gospel, Pilate, who's the Roman governor of Israel, he asked Jesus a question. Uh, and this is one of the last questions that Jesus asked before he died. And John records the question because this particular question actually highlights one of, if not the major themes of the account of Jesus' life. And it's, he says, what is truth? In John eighteen thirty six. And so it's the answer to that question is actually what John has been attempting to put on display through the whole account of Jesus' life. Uh, in fact, there are 14 times where very, Jesus very profoundly reveals that he is truth incarnate, that he actually is truth in the flesh. And so what we're doing over the next few weeks is we're looking at seven of those instances where Jesus makes a claim to be truth incarnate. And then later on in the spring, we'll actually look at seven more. So there's 14, seven now and seven later in the new year. Well, let's be honest, if you're not a Christian, the hair on the back of your neck might actually be standing up already. Because maybe you're thinking, how, how could this guy make such a bold claim that Jesus is truth? Well, I'm making the claim because Jesus Christ himself made the claim. He actually said in John 14, and we'll get to this passage in a few weeks. In John 14, verse 6, he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth. And so here's what we're going today. We're going to get to that statement about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. And we're going to do that by zooming all the way in on John 6.35. And we're going to use uh, the rest of that text. That's why I had the whole long thing read to help us understand this one verse. But if we're zooming in, we're going to zoom in in three parts. So part one is Jesus says, I am. Part two, he says, I am the bread of life. I am bread. And then part three, you'll never hunger or thirst again. So that's how we're going to look at it in those three parts. And along the way of a few applications specifically for Clint and Hannah as they commit to raising Asaph in the church. Uh, but really, these applications are for all of us, uh, especially those of you who are parents as you seek to raise your children in the truth. So let's go. Part one, Jesus says, I am. Now, on the surface, these two little words in our English translations, they seem kind of ordinary and innocuous, you know, just I am. Um, but the way that Jesus says I am is anything but ordinary. Uh, and the New Testament was written in the uh, ancient Greek language. And typically, if you wanted to say something like I am, you would use the Greek word ami. Uh, that's a normal way of saying I am. You'd say ami. So we can put that up. I think I've got it there for you. Keep going. There it is. Ami. Right. So that's the normal way of saying I am. But if you wanted to be more emphatic, uh, to really emphasize, to really say, I am, you'd also use the word ego. And so Jesus uses both. Uh, he says, ego, emi. Literally, he actually says, I am, I am. And so he's being very emphatic as he says this. But let's zoom in a little bit more because he's not just being emphatic. He's actually making a truth claim as he says this. He is claiming to be God in the flesh. Because, and we actually need to go back to our Old Testament here to really get what Jesus is saying, because Jesus actually makes a very important Old Testament reference when he says, ego emi, I am, I am. Uh, way back in the beginning of the Old Testament, when God introduces himself to Moses, here's what he says to Moses in Exodus 3.14. This is when God meets Moses in the famous burning bush. Moses asks God, he says, what is your name? What should I call you? In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, these words in, that, that's a, in the Hebrew language, and these words in the Hebrew language actually become the sacred name of God, Yahweh. 
And by the way, in Hebrew, we've talked about this in the past, but when you use a word twice, you're being emphatic, right? And so in Hebrew, to say something is pure gold, you'd say it's gold, gold. And so God is saying, I am, I am. Now, fast forward all the way back to the time that Jesus is living on earth, and he says these words. At this point now, the Hebrew Bible has actually been translated from Hebrew into Greek. And at the time that John is writing this passage in Greek, all kinds of people would have been very familiar with the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14. And the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14, where God says, I am who I am, when you translate into Greek, it looks like this. Ego emi. I am, I am. And so when Jesus says, ego emi, he's not just being emphatic. He's actually quoting Exodus 3.14. In other words, he's making a truth claim. He is claiming to be God in the flesh. And now maybe you say, okay, aren't you making kind of a large claim out of like one small phrase, right? And just making a, a huge claim out of this little phrase used one time. And honestly, if you ask that question, if you had that objection, you're in really good company. Because in the rest of this passage, the people actually say uh, about Jesus, or they actually ask a similar question. It says in verse 41 that the people who he's speaking to, after he says, I am, I am, ego, me, he references and calls himself God in the flesh. Here's what they say in verse 41 and 42. They're like, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son who we know? Like, don't we know this guy? But where does he get off calling himself, I am, I am? But the answer to the objection, aren't you making a big deal out of this one statement is this, that Jesus speaks of himself as I am, I am, ego, emi, quoting and applying Exodus 3.14. He, he makes this statement, not just one time in John's gospel, but 14 times. 14 times he takes the sacred name of God, Yahweh, I am who I am, and he applies it to himself. It is unmistakable in John's gospel that Jesus Christ claims to be God in the flesh. You cannot read John's gospel and think anything else about him. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Well, it means one, first that Jesus can't just be one source of truth. We can't just see him as a good moral teacher or as an important historical figure. That no one can actually come into contact with Jesus and respond to him neutrally. Either Jesus Christ really is God, and if so, if he really is, then you have to center your whole life around him. Or he's not God, and you have to dismiss him as a crazy person. Because nobody can say the kinds of things that he said and also claim to be God and be in their right mind if he's not actually God. And so you can't be neutral about Jesus. You can't just say he's a good moral teacher or merely an inspirational figure because he never claimed to be that. If Jesus Christ claimed anything about himself, it is that he is the I am who I am. I am God in the flesh. I am God incarnate. And if that is true, that means Jesus Christ is the central truth around which to center your whole life. There's no middle ground with him. And so... Hannah and Clint, as you raise your son, you are going to have opportunities to center your family's life and Asaph's life around good things, around education and health and athletics and career and money and family traditions and all kinds of things. And you as parents will have the opportunity to center your whole lives around him. 
but the most central truth, the only truth that will have him raise up to be wise and gentle and patient and kind and loving and generous and not proud and not envious is to center your whole family around Christ. Because that is exactly who he is, wise and loving and patient and kind and gentle. And so Jesus Christ presented himself as truth incarnate, as God in the flesh, ego emi, I am who I am. He is truth himself. Not just an abstract idea that somebody claims to believe in. He is a person who walked among us and left an indelible mark on the world, so much so that he is the most famous figure to ever live. At the end of John's gospel, he says there there won't be libraries big enough to contain all the things written about him. All of this means that he is verifiable. You can look at his claims and you can look at the historical accounts of his life and you can verify if he really is truth in the flesh or not. All right, let's keep zooming in because Jesus doesn't just say, I am. He says, I am the bread of life. And this is part two. So he is Yahweh bread, God bread. He is true bread. Part two, I am the bread of life, which of course, it's an illustration. He's not claiming to be an actual loaf of bread, okay? But what is he illustrating? And why this illustration? Why bread of life? Why, why this? And here's where we need to know the whole context of this verse that we're zooming in on. Because the day before all of this happened, the day before this whole conversation happens, Jesus actually performed an extraordinary miracle. Earlier on in John chapter 6, it says that Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Some scholars estimate that could be close to 20,000 people. And he did it with only two fish and five loaves of bread. So it was a miracle. Uh, It was bread from heaven. That's the only way that you could describe it. This is bread from heaven. And all these people that he's fed, uh, all of them, many of them probably knew their Bible stories and immediately would have thought of how God fed the entire nation of Israel when Moses was leading them through the desert for 40 years with something called manna. Now manna, if you don't know what that is, the literal translation of the Hebrew word for manna, I love this, it's one of my favorite things in the Bible. The literal translation is, what is it? because they didn't know what it was. It was, it was bread from heaven. Every morning, like dew on the ground, there was this manna, this what is it, and they would gather together and they would use it to make bread. Uh, literally, it was the bread from heaven that kept them alive. Bread of life, bread from heaven. And if you look at the context that we're zooming in on here, of this, of this verse we're zooming in on, right before Jesus says, I am the bread of life, If you look at it closely, they actually have a conversation about manna from heaven. The crowd actually brings it up in verses 30 and 31. And they say to Jesus, hey, you know that bread, that thing you did yesterday? How about you do some more of that? Can we get some more of that bread from heaven? And Jesus says in the next couple of verses that it's actually God who gives bread from heaven. And then he says in verse 33, take a look in your Bibles. He says, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then the crowd, in response to that, here's what they say. I love this. They say, well, then give us this bread always. Like, give us this bread every day. Like God gave manna from heaven, give us this bread always. And then we have our verse that we're zooming in on. Immediately after they say that, Jesus says, okay, so you want bread always? You want bread every day? You want bread from heaven? What does he say? I am. Ego emi. 
I am the bread of life. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that he himself is true bread from heaven. And if we keep zooming in on this phrase, bread of life, and the connection to their conversation about manna from heaven, there was this common belief amongst the Jewish people at the time that when the true Messiah came, in other words, when God comes as a sign of his coming, he would give manna from heaven. He would actually give bread, the bread of life. The life-giving, life-sustaining manna that you're looking for, Jesus says, is not made from what is it, and it's not made from flour, it's me. And if God truly is the source of heavenly bread, and if Jesus really has been sent by God, then this shocking turn should come as no surprise that the bread of God is a person, is a person who gives life to the world. That Jesus Christ is manna from heaven. He's what everybody has been waiting for. And so here's what this is getting at, that in Jesus Christ, in the I am who I am, the bread of life, in him is found the satisfaction to all of our longings. But just think about this for a minute. Think about your deepest longings. You know, a longing to be accepted or a longing to be loved, a longing for significance, a longing for accomplishment, a longing to build a family, a longing to be known and loved anyway in spite of all the things you don't want people to know about you. And then think of all the ways that we attempt to fulfill those longings, right? We swipe and swipe and swipe until we find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. We bury ourselves in our careers. We buy all kinds of things that we can't actually afford so that people will accept us as being on trend. We put every moment of our lives on, on social media so that people will say, will like it and give us approval. And yet none of those things are ultimately satisfying because what do you have to do the next day? Put something else up. More likes, more followers. Get the next promotion. And Clinton, Hannah, as parents, you, you will be tempted to find all of your satisfaction in Asaph. Tempted to put him at the center of your lives and to find all your worth and your value in his accomplishments and his happiness. But what Jesus is saying here to the two of you and to all of us, what he's saying when he says, I am the bread of life, is that only I, only Jesus Christ will satisfy your longings for value, for worth, for significance, for acceptance, and to be known and loved anyway. And that then leads us to part three. You'll never hunger or thirst again. And so follow this truth claim that's being made here. Jesus Christ is the I am who I am. God come down in the flesh. Truth incarnate. And in coming, he is the bread of life. The one who satisfies our hunger. And so the third thing he says in this verse that we're zooming in on, in verse 35, he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And what Jesus is getting at with this entire discussion with the crowds about bread from heaven is that we try to satisfy our cravings with all these things. Actually, in verse 27, here's what he said to them about that. He said, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. 
Now, what Jesus is getting at is the crowd seems to think that satisfaction comes when we are well-fed. When our physical needs are satisfied, when our careers are going well, when the relationship status changes to dating or the first child comes along, right? Then we've got it all. But I love the way G. Campbell Morgan approaches this passage. Morgan was a a Bible scholar and a pastor in the early 20th century, both here in Los Angeles and in London. And as he's addressing this particular passage for just a moment, he steps out of this one and he thinks about the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And if you don't know that story, it's a parable that Jesus tells about a son who has everything. He grows up in his father's house and his father provides him with everything. But when he gets to young adulthood, all of a sudden he thinks he knows it all. He thinks he knows everything and he he can't learn anything from anybody who's older or wiser than him. He knows everything and he can go out and build a much better life for himself. And so he takes the inheritance and he leaves. And Morgan talks about it like this. He, He asks the question, why did the son leave home? What was he looking for? He's looking for life. And he, he wanted life. And how did the son interpret life? He thought that life was found in clothes and in shoes and in jewelry and in career and in having expensive food and drink. In other words, life interpreted by material things. In other words, he's just chasing after all the same things that we chase after. And this is what the crowd in John 6 is after. It's why Jesus said, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And G. Campbell Morgan goes on to discuss the prodigal son to say that after the son lost everything and he becomes destitute and homeless, all the things that he sought, he actually found only when he returned to the father. When the son returned home after losing all of his clothes, what does the father say? The father says, bring him the best robe and put it on him. The son had no sandals on his feet, but the father has sandals and he puts them on his feet. The son left home because he wanted jewelry and he lost all of his jewels when he had nothing to eat. And the father says, when the son returns, put a ring on his finger. The son went out because he wanted rich and fine foods to eat. And in the end, after he lost everything, he longed to eat the food that the pigs were eating. But when the son returns home, the father throws him a feast. This prodigal son goes out to find his own success but he comes home hoping just to be a slave, to be a servant. But the father gives him actually the status of a son. And here's the point, all the things that we're craving, all the things that we're longing for, searching for, this acceptance, this provision, to be known and loved anyway, all of these things, we go out all over the world, we scour the internet to find them. All of these things that we're looking for, our heavenly father has an abundance. And he gives them to us. And we know that because Jesus Christ said, I am Yahweh, I am God. I am the bread of life. I am the truth that satisfies. And so, Clinton, Hannah, the absolute best thing you can do as a parent to Asaph is to lead him to the truth that Jesus Christ alone is what satisfies. That will save him from wandering. It will save him from folly. It will save him from falsehood. Ultimately, it will save him from his sins. The chief of all sins being our rejection of God. In our passage in verse 26, the crowd asks, what is it that we need to do in order to be approved by God? How do we get God's approval? And notice Jesus doesn't say, okay, well then go out and do a bunch of good works. 
And he also doesn't say, okay, go out and clean up your life before you come to God. But notice he also doesn't say, hey, believe whatever you want. All roads lead to God. He doesn't say that. Look very closely at what he says in verse 27. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So how are we approved by God? By believing in Christ. Not Christ plus something. Not just the parts of his teachings that we like. But in him. He who is the I am who I am. God in the flesh. And so what is it that we're supposed to believe about this one whom he has sent? Well, back in John chapter 1, it says this about him. We can put it on the screen. John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He comes from the Father like manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And notice near the end that word. You see that word full up there? He is full of grace and he is full of truth. He's, not, he's full of both of them. Not half grace and half truth, but full of both. Which means, think about this, how does Jesus Christ then handle the truth about you and I? How does he handle the truth that you and I, and even Asaph, one day will reject God? How does Jesus handle that truth? Well, he handles it with fullness. Every single person deserves what comes from rejecting God. And all of us have rejected God. And what we deserve is to be forsaken by God. That's what we've earned. And how does Jesus handle that truth? He handles it with fullness. But he's not only full of truth. It says he's full of grace. He's full of grace, which means that when Jesus Christ went to the cross 2,000 years ago, even though he's the only one who never rejected God. He's the only one who never rejected God. What does it say? One of the last things that Jesus says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus takes the forsakenness so that you and I can be accepted by God. That's his grace. That's what it is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And to believe that Jesus Christ came to do that, to believe that, that what he did is applied to you and me, that is what it is to be accepted by God. And so this truth, this is the truth. This is what we're going to be exploring over the next month and a half. What is truth? Jesus Christ is truth. Ego and me, I am who I am. He is truth in the flesh. And to center our lives around him, that is the only thing that will satisfy. Nothing else will bring us satisfaction. The only thing that will give us a vision for life, an identity that is solid no matter our circumstances, is to center our lives around Jesus Christ, the I am who I am. And here will be my challenge to you. If you struggle with the claim that Jesus is truth, here's my challenge to you. Be willing to investigate this claim for yourself. I said earlier that all truth is verifiable. All truth is verifiable. That's how truth works. If you can't verify it, it's not true. 
And so if you haven't engaged with this truth claim personally, as in you've only ever taken someone else's word for it, but you've never read the Bible yourself or never spent time in a church with actual Christian believers, I want to invite you to take the next few weeks to do that for yourself. There's just two ways to do that. One, there's small uh, white and blue New Testament Bibles in the back of a lot of the pews there. Take one of those home and read it. Just start Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's a little boring at the start. It's just a bunch of names. But keep going. Read it for yourself. Don't take somebody else's word or what they say about it. What do you think about it? And then secondly, stick with us on Sunday mornings for the next few weeks. Not only are we, am I going to try to attempt to show from John's gospel that Jesus is truth, but actually, the church is the body of Christ. And so if you want to know Christ, get to know his church. And that's one of the best ways you can investigate and make up your own mind, is what are his people like? What are they actually like? Not what you heard, not what you read, but what are they actually like? All right, now, are we ready to talk about this eating flesh and drinking blood thing? Are we ready for this? I told you we'd get to it. Here we go. He is not saying eat his actual body and drink his actual blood. If that were true, very few people could be Christians. (laughs) What he is saying is ingest the truth into your life. Take the truth all the way to the very center of your being. That just like when you eat bread and you drink wine, when you ingest it, it goes down where? Into the center of your being. And by the way, it doesn't just sit there. It nourishes you. It brings you joy. It gives you life and vitality. And what Jesus is saying when he says, eat my body and drink my blood, is he's saying, ingest truth into the very center of your being. Let it nourish you. Let it fill you with vitality and joy and life. Base your whole life, center your whole life around me, because I am the truth. That's what he's saying. And that then leads us to what we're about to do next, which is to eat his body and drink his blood. Uh, Not lunch, but the Lord's Supper. But first, let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this truth that your son, Jesus Christ, ego and me, I am who I am. God in the flesh, the God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you that we have seen his glory and that he is full of grace and truth. And Lord, would you help us to take that truth and that grace all the way into the very center of our beings. And would it nourish us? Would it give us joy and life and vitality? And Lord, I pray once more for Clint and Hannah as they raise Asaph. Would they make Jesus Christ the very center of their lives and of their family? And we pray, Lord, that when Asaph grows, that he also would ingest the truth of Jesus Christ right into the very center of his life that he would come to know you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.